Hi, welcome to a small, medium, at large podcast. I'm your host, Gail Heisen, bringing you intimate stories that heal. Today, we have a very special guest, and I'd like to tell you how I met him before we bring him on to the show. Our guest, Russell Targ, was working at a company called Interval Research, where my husband was also working. One day, my husband received a email from Dean Radin and Russell Targ that they were looking for subjects or people that were working in the company to participate in something called the Phenom Project, studying psychic phenomena and doing experiments. They needed subjects to be in these experiments. So my husband thought about it and he wrote back to them and said, I'm not sure, my wife doesn't work here at Interval, but she is someone who does unusual things like the other day she woke up in the morning and said to us, you know, I just had a dream that our cleaning lady is not gonna show up to work today because she has a son who's sick and throwing up. 30 minutes later, the phone rings. And of course it's the cleaning lady saying she's not showing up for work. Her son is throwing up. He mentioned that story to them and they said, yes, we'd like to meet her. Could you have her come down to interval? We'd like to interview her for an hour. And if she could please make a list of all the psychic stories that she has to tell us about. Well, <laughs> in my 40 something years, which is about how old I was when we met, I had never thought about all the psychic experience I'd ever had. It was just part of my life. And so when they said I had to sit down and write it, I wasn't even sure how to do that. So I asked my niece to sit at the computer and she, she typed up something called Psychic Auntie Gail, which was 10 pages of stories that I could come up with off the top of my head that I could remember to bring into them for this interview. This must have been 1998. 1998. And when I um, arrived in 1998 to bring this interview to them, I found there were more stories that I wanted to tell them. At the end of the interview, which ended up lasting two and a half hours, and which Dean said he wished he had videotaped it, they both separately took me to the side and said, you know, Gail, you should write a book. And Russell said, you should write a book. And I'd also like to give you a book that I just wrote. And he had given me his, 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 the book he had just written. And when we left, I decided to do what they said because I felt so encouraged by these two scientists to write a book about my stories. And that's how a small medium at large, Adventures of a Psychic Traveler, became in existence. And I've since then uh, decided that we'd have a podcast. So I feel that my guest today is also partially responsible for the fact that I have a podcast now and that I have a book that's being looked at by uh, publishers. So in saying all this, I have a lot of gratitude to them for inviting me in and showing me that I could do something called remote viewing without being trained as a remote viewer. So with Russell's guidance, we had some very successful remote viewings back then, and it started a, a friendship and a continued participation for me to be subjects in all sorts of different experiments with friends and people that they both knew, colleagues, and it opened up a whole nother world for me. So I, it's difficult to express how much gratitude I have for Russell and Dean and these people coming into my life. But I, I feel that it's not just a, a professional relationship. It's also a very deep friendship that I, I hold very dear in my heart. 
So let me tell you a little bit about Russell before we start our interview with him today. Russell Tard is an American physicist, author, and ESP researcher, and he's a pioneer in the earliest developments of laser and laser applications in the 1950s and 60s. Russell is also an ESP researcher, writer, publisher, and teacher. In 1997, he retired from Lockheed Missile and Space Company as a project manager and senior staff scientist where he developed laser technology for airborne detection of wind shear and air turbulences, keeping you safe in the sky. <clears throat> he received National Aeronautics and Space Administration awards for inventions and contributions in lasers and laser communications. He has published nine books and more than 100 refereed papers on ESP research, lasers, plasma physics, and laser applications. At the Stanford Research Institute in the 1970s and 1980s, Russell and his colleague, Harold Putoff, co-founded a 23-year, $25 million program of research into psychic abilities and their operational use for the US intelligence community, including the CIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, and Army Intelligence. These abilities are referred to collectively as remote viewing. Targ and Putoff demonstrated that retired police commissioner Pat Price, photographer Hella Hamid, and artist Ingo Swan all had remarkably accurate and reliable psychic abilities. Targ and Putoff published their findings in Nature and Proceedings of the IEEE. Russell Targ's autobiography, Do You See What I See? Memoirs of a Blind Biker was published in 2008 and he describes his life as a scientist and legally blind motorcyclist. He has recently produced a fabulous two hour documentary film, Third Eye Spies, describing his research in psychic abilities. Targ lectures worldwide on remote viewing. He resides in Palo Alto, California, with his wife, Patricia. So let's welcome Russell Targ to our show today. Welcome, Russell, to a small medium at large. Thank you, Gail. I'm very happy to be here with you. See, I grew my father was a well-known book publisher and bookseller. So I grew up and anyone who came to our house was either writing a book or was trying to sell a book. So it's natural for me to meet you and hear your stories and say, you ought to write a book, because I grew up with the idea that everybody ought to write a book. Now I've grown up with the idea that everybody is psychic. This is what I learned from my two decades at SRI. This is, this is, this, the, I have one question before we start into the psychic part, which is the most things I'd love to talk about since lasers really aren't my specialty. <laughs> but I'd like to find out, and I'm sure our listeners would, which was what steered you in this direction when you were in college and studying physics and mathematics? Why go into psychic phenomena research? And what was the pivoting point that made you see this was a path you wanted to go down? Well, before I was a uh, child researcher, I was a child magician. So mm -hmm. I grew up in New York and I could go to, um, the little magic shops 
and watch people do tricks. And then I could go to the magic store and talk to the magicians behind the counter and buy tricks. So by the time I was 12 or 13, I was doing magic on the stage for art openings and birthday parties. So I was doing, I, I had the idea that I was interested in magic from my childhood. And it was from standing on the stage, pretending to read people's minds that I would occasionally get a flash of what the person's house looked like or what the bedroom looked like or the stairs going up to the bedroom and the patchwork quilt on the bed. And I learned to recognize those flashes of psychic ability that would overlay the nasty trick that I was doing based on what I had previously read through trickery. So, so you were seeing both uh, book magic and real magic. That's right. So when I was 14 in my biology class, a upperclassman, Robert Rosenthal, came to our class and showed us ESP cards that Duke was being used by J.B. Ryan Duke University, the famous squares, triangles, no, squares, wavy lines, circles, crosses, and what have you. I think it was a star was the other one. That's right, a star is the other one. These five, five famous symbols. So uh, Rosenthal sort of lit my fuse. And since I lived in New York, I could go to the Society for Psychical Research as a 14-year-old and say, I'm interested in this stuff. Do you have something to read? At 14, that's pretty amazing, Russell. Well, New York, New York is the opportunity to do all kinds of things. If, mm -hmm. if you have something you want to do, New York is a place to do it. That's right. So by the time I was in college, so I was two years later. I went to I was in, went to college when I was sixteen. By that time, I was very thoroughly educated about what was going on presently in ESP research. So I had the idea that I would like to do ESP research for the rest of my life, because that looked very exciting. But I knew enough from going to parapsychology meetings that there are a lot of people doing research in ESP, but none of them were making a living. So I, 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 I was a depression. I grew up where we had very, very little money in the late 1930s. So mm -hmm. I, I knew about being poor and I didn't want to replicate that experience. So I figured out as a college student that I should learn to do something real like physics. And if I got well-known in physics, then I could migrate over and do ESP research. And that's what I did. So I, I left Columbia where I did graduate work. I left there in uh, 19, 56 and be, began working on lasers, which, so I, I got a chance to be a pioneer in the development of the laser, not because I invented it, but because I had a friend, Gordon Gould, who really was the inventor of the laser. And from my work at Columbia, I knew about discharges in gases. So he thought I would be a useful person to work in the lab that he was setting up. And I did that for a number of years. That's wonderful. So then you were doing your work with uh, lasers, but on the side, you were also doing your work with psychic 
with your interest in psychic phenomena. That's right. I was building one of the laser things I built was a ESP gadget on the side where you could try and use your mind to deflect the electron beam. And I have I actually published that. I was hadn't thought about that. I published that in Edgar Mitchell's book on psychic things because I had a couple of people who were able to stand by my electron beam gadget, move the beam, record it on a chart recorder, very good signal to noise ratio. So by the early 1950s, I was building ESP gadgets. That's, that's incredible. And I think you're still building ESP gadgets today, but you're doing it in the tech world. That's right, building, building, game, building games that we sell in the Apple store. Exactly. Yeah, that's progress. Yes. <laughs> so before we let's shall we talk about the games at the end of our talk, but maybe start off now with uh, the discussions of psychic phenomena. Sure. So in 1972, I was by that time uh, quite well known. I had a lot of experience in lasers, laser research. I'd published a lot of papers and was well known in that field. So I wanted to make my transition and start an ESP laboratory. So I had the idea that I could go back to my wealthy laser customers at NASA and the CIA and tell them, I've done a lot of hard things for you over the past 15 years. I wanna start an ESP lab at Stanford Research Institute because I just happened to have met Hal Putoff at a lecture he gave <clears throat> and told him what I was interested in doing, that I was uh, going to uh, go to a NASA conference on speculative technology. And I had worked for them and I bet I could get some money. Hal was working at SRI. And the deal I made is if I get some money from, SRI, from NASA, could we start a program at SRI? And he said, that would be great. That's just what I'd like to do. What took me to his lecture is he was lecturing on American and Soviet research in parapsychology to a Stanford audience. And that's exactly what I had been lecturing on all over the place to little groups. So he and I had exactly the same interest in ESP. And it was just a coincidence that he was also very well known for laser research. He published a uh, well-received book on nonlinear optics. So he and I were both laser researchers. We were both born in Chicago. We both worked at our first job at Sperry Gyroscope Company. So we had been following a remarkably similar trajectory uh, for the previous 25 years by the time we met in 1972. Sounds more like than more than just a coincidence to me. That sounds like it was what they call kismet, meant to be. Yeah, I was actually called in to the laboratory where he was working for Sperry in Gainesville, Florida, because they had a problem with their microwave tubes. And I had solved a similar problem at my microwave place working for Sperry in Great Neck, Long Island. Mm -hmm. So I actually was down in his lab, um, probably 19, early 1970s, 
uh, help helping with his his high power tube, and I had never met him, but we were followed, followed almost identical trajectories. And from there, what? So then, what transpired after that? What happened is, uh, I had my I had an ESP game that I had built, and my my earliest ESP game, which I will show you here. This is a uh, four four choice game where you try and press the square corresponding to the color that you're about to see. And if you do that correctly, then the bell will ring. Uh, excellent pick. So I had that gadget with me when I went to St. Simon's Island for the NASA Conference on Speculative Technology. And at that conference, uh, Werner von Braun was there with a lot of other luminaries. Von Braun was interested in my ESP game and he did very, very well. So von Braun took me to meet the administrator of NASA, Jim Fletcher. And he said, this guy is up to something interesting. He wants to teach astronauts how to get in touch with their psychic abilities. And uh, Fletcher thought that was interesting. And we could do that at Stanford Research Institute. And he agreed to give me $80,000 to start a program. So wow. this, this is the idea famous from, from the foundation series of uh, yeah. the series, series of books by our Asimov. And he had a great semanticist. Semanticist says, nothing has to be true. A thing just has to sound true. So when- so I had this cockamamie story for the administrator of NASA that I'm gonna make your astronaut psychic and I told him that with enough conviction. So he said, okay, I'll give you some money. So tell me, was that before Edgar Mitchell went on his uh, flight to the moon or was that after that? Had you met Edgar Mitchell prior to that? And that's what he was I doing? Met Edgar, I met Edgar Mitchell at that conference. Ah, so that's where the seed was planted. That's right. So I got together with, with Mitchell there but I already had brought my ESP game with the idea of getting a contract from NASA. So I was with a lot of, a lot of famous people there. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke was there. Well, I have to say in the over 20 years that I've known you, I've seen that anything is possible because anything you've set out to do, you accomplish and it doesn't matter any barriers that come in your way you somehow very, very delicately remove them without force and the things that you want appear and you get them done. I mean, just the film that you completed, Third Eye Spies, that was a tremendous feat to make a documentary like that about the history of your program. Yeah, I was very happy to, to do that. That's a two hour film. And the thing that's remarkable about this film that shows what we were doing for the CIA by way of creating psychic spies for 20 years, looking at inter-Russian stuff and Chinese stuff. What was remarkable about this film uh, is that the two contract monitors, Ken Kress and um, Kit Green, two senior scientists from NASA 
were on camera saying, yes, we were there, targeted that, and it was useful, and it's just the way they portray it in the film. So the idea to get CIA to testify to the accuracy of what you're saying is really very, very amazing. It's amazing to have been able to get the CIA on camera to say, yes, it's all true. Well, not for you, because I know you do amazing things and everyone else benefits from the things that you reach out because it was you, I believe, who went and declassified all the information, which took a lot of work and energy so that you could share this information with the rest of the world. Is that correct? That's right. My, my son, Nicholas, did that by working through, his, he's a lawyer and he worked through his channels including our local congressman. Uh, in, in the end, what, what it came to, this is 1995, he said, why don't you declassify this stuff? Otherwise, we'll see you in court and we can talk to the judge and jury about why it should not be, class, be classified. And CIA said, we don't wanna to go to court. It's now 20 years since you did that. It, it's all yours. And they sent me a big package of material uh, marked declassified. So we were able to go forward with that. And my son, Nicholas, is the one who got it declassified. Well, it's wonderful to have a son that's, that's a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> He's also very accomplished at getting things that he wants. That's, well, he learned that from his father and probably his mother too. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. So the idea at our at SRI, we showed up in the lab and neither Hal nor I had any experience working with subjects. We're, Hal and I are both straight up experimental physicists. Mm -hmm. we're, I, I'd taken a lot of psychology in college. So I sort of knew the moves and knew about statistics and so forth. And Ingo Swan had heard that we got a contract, even though it was classified, he had heard about it. So he came to our lab and we began to do experiments with him. And he said, this is a big waste of time. If you don't give me something worthwhile to do, I'm going home. And we said, okay, what, what's worthwhile? Said, if I wanna see a picture in the next room, I'll go into the next room. If I wanna see the picture in the envelope, I'll open the envelope. Why don't you get somebody to hide somewhere in the Bay Area and I'll describe what it looks like where he's hiding. So Ingo, in a way, invented remote viewing. He said, I want to, if he said, what you're, what you're asking me to do is a trivialization of my ability. Mm -hmm. So Ingo invented the protocol of psychic hide and go seek. And he said, but yeah, I'll do one of those for you and show you how it works. And he did very well. Hal and I went together to the Palo Alto City Hall and Ingo said, I see some kind of quadrant, quad, and there's circles and intersecting lines in the pavement in a big building covered with glass. And that's exactly where we were. We came home with the photographs and he had already replicated that in a drawing. So mm -hmm. we, we got the idea that this may not be too hard to do if you got a psychic person. So we then were encountered a psychic art, a psychic policeman named Pat Price. Price had heard about our work, and he was. He said, "I I've been doing that all my life to catch crooks. Why why don't I come and work with you?" And we gave 
we have been given geographical coordinates of something that the CIA wanted us to describe. So we gave those coordinates to Price and he made a drawing of a, what looked like a military installation. And so this is all very secret. And in the basement, they have filing cabinets. And the name of this place is um, something or other. And the, the pro programs are all have pool names like uh, eight ball, nine ball, rack up, so forth. And he gave us all, and it turned out that all those words he gave us were the top secret names of programs that were going on at a national security agency, an NSA post in Sugar Grove in West Virginia. Wasn't so, he also instrumental in um, aiding the FBI in finding Patricia Hearst? I, yeah. I lived here at that time. I lived in California. That's when I was yeah. here. I'll just finish this story and I'll tell you about Patricia Hurt. Okay. So broke loose. This, the NSA was not amused that the CIA had targeted some psychics in California on their top secret listening post. So we basically had a, a fleet of cars show up at SRI. What the hell are you doing? Oh my God, that must have been scary. <laughs> and it turned out the coordinates that Kit Green gave us were of his neighbor's cabin that he had built by hand just over the hill from Sugar Grove. So neither Kit nor the neighbor knew anything about Sugar Grove because of the top secret facility. And it just happened as these things just happened. Uh, and Pat Price said, does they ask, they asked Pat Price, well, if the target was a log cabin, why did you describe the NSA listening post. And he said, well, the more you try and hide something, the more it shines like a beacon in psychic space. So I'm coming in from 5,000 feet. And I, of course, saw the log cabin, but this is a CIA project. And I assume you wanted me to describe the, the military base with the radar antennas and the roll-up doors and the helicopters and all that stuff. Why would I just tell you about a log cabin if I can tell you about this fancy um, listening post with all the antennas? Mm -hmm. So the government must have gotten pretty scared by then to know that it was possible for their, their secret work to be spied on by some other individual in a completely remote location. That did the deal, yes. They, they, uh, Price's description of Sugar Grove got us our first contract with the CIA because they had no doubt that uh, this nice, cheerful policeman had somehow penetrated into the belly of the beast and was able to read the names of things on filing, on filing cards. Did they relocate that place after he did that? So that- They eventually it shut it down. They shut it down a few years later. I don't think we were instrumental in that. Mm -hmm. I then did a series of nine trials with Price, where I don't drive, of course, because of my bad vision, but uh, each day, Hal would choose some, choose a, we had 60 cards indicating 60 different places in the Bay Area that I didn't know about. And each day, Hal would randomly be given a card by the secretary 
and those were his traveling orders. So he would go to an airport or a bowling alley or a train station or church. And I'm sitting with Price and I'm trying to lead Price to describe those surprising images that show up in his awareness regarding uh, where hell was hiding. That, that was remote viewing. And it turned out that Pat Price was able to get seven out of those nine first place matches, which is extraordinary, significant at odds of one in a hundred thousand. And the idea is that what we all, this was a lot of kidnapping going on at that time. And what we realized is that if Hal had been kidnapped nine days in a row, Price would have found him the first time we looked in seven of those nine places. Highly significant work, and we were able to publish that in Nature magazine. So the first first thing we published pertaining to remote viewing was uh, Pat Price's <clears throat> remarkable re remote viewing of uh, Hal's hiding in the Bay Area, and that was significant at odds one or a hundred thousand. I have a question: Did you find a difference between? working with uh, military and say police who have already had a lot of mind training and work because of the avenues that they chose, as opposed to say someone like Hella who was a photographer or some other person who had nothing to do with those kind of things, were they as equally able to locate things like this when they weren't military trained or? That's a good question. So after we got, such remarkable results with Pat Price, who was the psychic policeman, and Ingo Swan, who was a psychic artist, CIA said, can't you find somebody as a control? Can you bring somebody in who's never done this before? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I have a friend who's a photographer who just moved from New York to LA. I'll see if she'll work with us. And that was Hella. And Hella said, well, I've never done, I've done a lot of things in my life. She's a woman for all seasons. She'd done many, many things. She was born in Germany and left because of the Holocaust and lived in England, <clears throat> came to America as a photographer. And she said, well, I think if, if you're gonna pay me to be psychic, I said, that's really a hoot. I'll come, I'll come to San Francisco and work with you. So we, and, and she became a uh, good friend of the, she, she was a friend of the family. She took pictures mm -hmm. of my children. So she came and stayed with us for most of the time. And Hal would go hide and she described where Hal was hiding. I, basically, I would tell people, my, my magic words are very simple. I say, don't try and guess where they are. N naming and guessing is the enemy of psychic functioning. Just tell me about the surprising images that show up in your mind. Tell me what's surprising that you see and just make a sketch of what you see. You can't do that wrong because only you know what's in your mind. And all I want you to do is make a sketch of what you're seeing and this will work out. Well, I have to interrupt here for one second because Dean said something about you. And once he said that to me, it explained to me in all the years of me doing remote viewing with you, why I've always felt very successful when anytime we've done something together is 
Dean said, you have something very special in a way that you allow the person to do the task. You just give them a nice, simple permission and everything follows through. And it's always worked together in my relationship with you. And I, I think there are, you know, there are many people that do remote viewing, but you specifically have a way of making the viewer completely relaxed into doing what the task is. And I think that that's, that's, that's your expertise in teaching that I don't feel like anyone's quite as great at it as you are. <laughs> well, I'm very happy we've been so successful together. And I must say for my decade at SRI, I did that with countless people who came into my lab and I was able to show them how to do it. And most of those people had never done anything like this before. To finish the Hella story, Hella was even more successful than the most psychic man in the world, Pat Price. Hella was, wow. Hella was successful at one in a million describing targets all over the Bay Area. And then I published Hella together with Pat Price in the Proceedings of the Engineering Society. And I mentioned that because it's absolutely extraordinary to publish an ESP paper in Nature and in the Proceedings of the IEEE. There's nothing like that had ever happened before. Wonderful. So we, I was very happy. See, I, I had I'd done lots of, I don't have an advanced degree. Mm -hmm. I, I just had a bachelor's degree from Queens College. So I understood during my scientific work, if I want to make a mark, I have to publish every damn thing that I did because I don't have a degree to lean back on. Does my work better be publishable in good places? So I felt the same way with the ESP work we did. And we were uniquely successful in publishing our work in the most prestigious top-notch journals in the world. And we then, the year, next year, Pat, Pat, Patricia Hurst was kidnapped and the um, police in Berkeley called our lab, said, we know that you guys are doing some psychic stuff. Could you help us find the heiress? And we asked Pat, does he want to do that? He said, oh yeah, I do that all the time. I can, <laughs> I can do that. So Hal and I drove to Berkeley and we walked into the police station and they said, we have a lot of questions we'd like to ask you. And Pat said, don't ask me any questions. Let me just tell you what we're gonna do. Uh, I wanna see your mug book. I wanna see the big picture book you have of all the, all the your latest criminals. And we pulled out this big loose leaf binder and he turned the pages and turned the pages. We all hung, hung over his shoulder. And then he got to a picture and said, that's, that's the guy, that's the ringleader. And that was Donald DeVries. And he was able to just put his finger on the guy who was actually the ringleader. That's amazing. And he said, I know, and he also mentioned uh, the other guy, Mr. Wolf, I can't remember Wolf's first name, who turned out to be the boyfriend of Patricia Hurst. So he was able to identify, Wolf would not have been in the mug book anyway, because he wasn't a criminal. Mm -hmm. But he was able to find Donald DeVries. And they, he then said, I suppose you want to find the car also. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be that would be nice. He said, "Well, it, it's up that way, about fifty miles, which was north." And he said, "I see it uh, across from a diner next to some large gas storage cylinders." And one of the police detectives said, "Well, I know where that is. It's on my the way to my house." Uh, wow. up so they dispatched a cruiser. And 15 minutes later, they said, we found the car and the steel cartridges on the floor. So we know it's the right, it's the right car. You know, it's amazing that stories like these that are factual and even backed with policemen who were there in the office watching this all occur, that scientists like you and Dean still are met with skepticisms that just seem I, I mean, when you show them information like this, it's hard to believe. How can they be skeptical about psychic phenomena or remote viewing? Well, they could just not believe it because like a religious thing, but uh, our work has not been attacked by anybody. There's no, nobody said that you're, you're sloppy or you were deceived. The, the government kept supporting that is, I, I could tell you stories about stuff we've done that's very remarkable. But the most remarkable thing of all is that we had continuous funding for $25 million for 23 years working for the CIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, Army Intelligence. All of these people are not easily amused. <laughs> so if they thought anything was crooked or questionable, right. we'd have been out of business. But we weren't out of business. We, we had 23 years of continuous support doing basically what I've just been describing. Do you and think that's still going on today in some other area in the military or the CIA where they took your you know, education of what they learned from you and decided to do their own things? Well, in the film, Kit Green says that they're still doing it at the CIA. So mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know, our program was terminated in, um, 1995. And who decided the termination of that? Was that a, a government person or? The CIA did not like being teased by Congress. With, with totally, there are many, there are a number of people at the CIA who felt that the work we were doing uh, was was not Christian. We were working with the devil. Okay, got it. So the so the they they wouldn't even look at our work in part part of the. You're 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 in league with the the dark force. You're in league with the devil. Mm -hmm. I understand that, and I, I understand what I can understand now. What happened? <laughs> there was not not. They didn't say your statistics are bad or your making errors in your protocol, I said, um, Jesus wouldn't like it. Right. It, it was it was backed by a, a religious, uh, by a religious group. That's right. And they have a lot of power. Um, so let's go back on to we were discussing about, about being psychic and whether people need to take a course to be trained. I mean, if our listeners are interested in becoming remote viewers, what would you tell them to do? Would you tell them to take a course? Would you tell them uh, to read a book? What would you What would you tell them about this if they were interested in doing this? 
Well, my last book, uh, The Reality of ESP, has a chapter describing how to work with another person to develop psychic abilities in both of you. Psychic ability is a natural ability. Mm -hmm. I had all kinds of people come into my lab, experienced psychics, um, policemen, uh, the Undersecretary of Defense, uh, the director of new projects at NASA. And in the end, the Army Intelligence wanted me to train up six of their people so that they could start a remote viewing program at Fort Meade on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. so out of a group of 30 people who are waiting for us in a gymnasium, I chose six to work with. And one by one, they would come to SRI and I would show them the moves of how to do remote viewing. I'm a little uncomfortable when people say, well, uh, can you teach me to be psychic? <laughs> the answer is no, I can't really teach you to do anything, but I can, I can give you permission. I can set the stage. I can show you the moves. Exactly. And uh, so I did that. I worked with six people from Fort Meade, from the Arm Army our, our Army Intelligence, and four of them did excellently. One was Joe McMonagall, who was a superstar, and a couple of the others were outstanding. And that program, after even after our program was closed, they went on. So that program went on for uh, a dozen years doing remote viewing independent of us. So that's the additional evidence that this is probably true because the army had their own program and in, in the eventual publication from the, the that, that program was called Stargate. Mm -hmm. Eventual Stargate archives showed that in their decade, they had hundreds of taskings from the CIA and Defense Intelligence Agency. So these agencies came back to Fort Meade again and again and again over a, over a decade. So it's obvious that they were getting good data or they wouldn't keep going back. Exactly. So when you were doing your film, Third Eye Spies, that was a big undertaking to make a documentary about 23 years worth of research and what went on at the Stanford lab. Did you find it an emotional experience, a sentimental experience, a joyous experience to go back and meet with remote viewers? You've been with Yuri Geller, CIA, retired CIA men. How was that experience for you in the making of this documentary? Oh, it was, it was like a, a celebration. Ah. It done something that worked very well. So, I mean, the fact that these guys would appear on screen it really indicates that what we did was unequivocally successful. And that, and that was fun for me to go back and talk to those people. So I went to England and talked to Uri Geller in his new, in, in, his, in his house. I went to talk to all the different people from the army. And we had Ingo Swan and Pat. We did not have Pat Price because Price died, 
1974. And we had lost Ingo before the film, correct? And we lost Hella. So our, our three superstars were not available. So have, have you uh, felt very good about the completion of the documentary and the fact that, that this is a piece of history that now is public for everyone to, it's, you, be, you, you shared something for the public that I think was very important. So I must feel pretty good about that. Oh yeah, and the idea that I've got to publish what I do or it's not real is why I wanted to make this film. So it mm -hmm. makes me very happy that I know that hundreds of thousands of people have seen this. It's streaming on Amazon Prime. So anybody who belongs to Amazon can see this film at no cost. And it's a uh, high quality, good production value film with all these interesting people. And we reenact uh, a lot of the remote viewing or we have the original data from a lot of the remote viewings. So we, that's a pretty, pretty good run through our program, uh, replicating what we did there for, during those two years, uh, I was, 20 years. I wanna say, I, I have to put my five second little plug in for myself that I was so thrilled to be in your extras of the two of us doing a remote viewing together. So I always have that for my, my, my little piece of history of us together. And I was just really honored to be a little part of your film there. I'm very glad that you're part of that. See, after we did our work with Ingo Swan, where we found uh, Patty Hearst and worked with, I misspoke. We did the work with Pat Price and found Patricia Hearst and did things with Ingo and Pat and penetrated the uh, NSA facility. We had the idea that remote, View that we wanted to do something in the distance. So Hal went on a trip to South America and each day I would sit with Pat Price in our little shielded room. What we learned is that people like, I set up the shielded room initially because I was I didn't want to be deceived by Uri Geller because I knew that Uri was good friends with Andrea Puharic and Puharic is in addition to being a physician is a very experienced physicist. And I was worried that, and he was making hearing aids for people. So we had the radio and the tooth hypothesis that we had to worry about. So we wanted Geller to be in a shield environment. And of course that didn't make any difference, but it turned out that people like being in the shielded room because although the shielded room does not shield out the psychic signal, it does shield out extraneous noise that interferes with the psychic signal. Is that a Faraday cage? A Faraday cage is exactly what it is. And so does that also cut out electrical uh, influences or? Its purpose is to cut out all electrical signals. Mm -hmm. So we had a high quality Faraday cage. So Price and I would sit with our coffee in a little phone booth covered with screen and Hal was someplace traveling in South America and Price would say, I see it looks like a harbor. The next day he said, it looks like a marketplace. And next day he might say, it looks like a church. Next day he might say, it looks like a volcano. 
And on day five, Price didn't show up. Oh. And I can't remember now why he didn't show up. But in the spirit that the show must go on, I said, okay, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. And I'm just talking to my tape recorder. I said, okay, this is Russ Targan, Pat Price, but Price doesn't seem to be coming. So I will describe what I see. And I said, it looks like uh, an airport on an island. And I see the airport going off at a diagonal and there's a hanger on the left. And when I'm doing it, I'm looking at my drawing. Actually, you can see my drawing on the wall of the room I'm in. But um, anyway, uh, I gave a drawing and eventually Hal came back and my drawing had been surprisingly accurate. My, my, my drawing of Hal's hiding place at this airport in San Andreas Island off the shore of Columbia, that drawing uh, would could stand up in the Hall of Fame uh, with the very nicest drawings of Ingo or Pat or Hella. And it's important because it shows that uh, remote viewing is so easy that even a scientist can do it. <laughs> but yet you really chose not to do that that much. You really chose to work with other people to do it, to do it with you. Oh yeah, they didn't want me to work. They, they didn't want me to be part of the program because if, if the, if it ever came out, the target of the psychic that would discredit the whole program. Right. So I, I didn't. I didn't want to be part of the program. There's a lot of protocols to have to keep with when you're doing scientific research and study in order for it to be accepted and respected by the scientific community. We we were once visited. Well, I was. I I finally escaped from my. I had not been traveling anywhere during this whole time, but finally in 1995, 1975, uh, I said, I wanna go somewhere. So they said, okay, you can um, make an itinerary and we will have find somebody to track you each day. And the first place I went to was New Orleans cause I had a friend in medical school there. And I tossed a die on the pavement and that die took, I had a picture book from New Orleans, and that die took me to the New Orleans Superdome, and I just stood by the Superdome, the tape recorder in my hand, and I said, I'm standing by the New Orleans Superdome, it's noon on Wednesday, and this looks like nothing so much as a flying saucer sitting in the middle of the city. Mm -hmm. The psychic for this experiment was Gary Langford, who's another physicist at SRI. And he was being interviewed by Elizabeth Rauscher, who is a Berkeley physics professor. So we had all well-known sort of straight up people doing this. And so Garrett, Gary's in the screen room. And he said, I don't know what's going on here, Elizabeth. All I see is this damn UFO. You think, <laughs> you think Russell's been abducted? And Elizabeth says, well, you never know. Why don't you just make a drawing? Why don't you just draw what you see? And Gary made two drawings. One is of this large UFO. And of course, if you remember what the Superdome looks like, it looks exactly like a UFO in the middle of the city. So as unlikely as it was, Gary was just a walk-in. Yeah, I can do remote viewing. I understand the, how you do it. 
So his very first drawing with us was again a ultra successful, well done drawing. And we, as we did this through my decade at SRI, we got more and more of these extra good looking remote viewings from almost all the people. I mean, one of the drawings that was super good looking was from the Undersecretary of Defense, Walter LaBerge, well-known, prominent um, Clinton uh, office holder. He eventually support, helped support the program at Fort Meade. And George Pesder, I did this with George Pesderitz, who was our great friend of the program, who was head of new projects at NASA. So as, as basically uh, my spiritual development came from sitting in the dark for a decade at SRI. Mm -hmm. the, the, what, what did you do at SRI? Well, I sat in the dark for a decade <laughs> showing people how to get in touch with their psychic ability. That was my job. Mm -hmm. And that worked very well as we did many dozens of remote viewings with experienced people and generally inexperienced people and had very good success for that decade. There was one uh, I think you wanted to speak about, which was an Ingo Swan one about a planet. Can you tell us about that particular one? Oh, yeah, George Pesdritz was, was in my office. He was our contract monitor. We had a contract to build an ESP teaching machine. In fact, the program that started our little contract that started our program was, can you teach people to be psychic with feedback and reinforcement with the ESP teaching machine? And George Pesdritz, the administrator at NASA with our contract monitor and also became a good friend of the program. <clears throat> he said, we're sending a spacecraft to Jupiter <clears throat> in, in, in a week or so, Ingo. Could you do, tell us, is there something we're gonna find on Jupiter that's interesting that we don't know about? And Ingo said, well, give me a pad. And he took out a puff of the cigar, <laughs> starts to draw. And he said, well, I see Jupiter here and there's a ring all the way around Jupiter that I, I've never seen before. And George said, well, aren't you thinking of Saturn? Saturn's the one with the rings. And Ingo said, George, listen, I've been looking at the solar system my entire life. You've got to believe I know the difference between Jupiter and Saturn. <laughs> when, you, when your Pioneer spacecraft gets to Jupiter, you'll be able to take a picture of this ring around Jupiter that I've just drawn, very clear ring. And he, I have that drawing showing NASA's photographs of the ring around Jupiter next to Ingo's drawing of the ring around Jupiter. And the idea of a ring around Jupiter, uh, Ingo is the first person to say those words. So he was able to close his eyes and directly experience something 500 million miles away. So we have the idea that remote viewing and consciousness penetrates everything. 
There's no limits to what you can do. We think that psychic functioning is what quantum mechanics these days call a non-local ability. It's independent of space, independent of time, because our work now has been replicated in dozens of laboratories all over the world. And some people are more successful than others, but everyone agrees that it's no harder to look further away than across the street. That is increasing the distance does not interfere, does not degrade the remote viewing. Similarly, looking ahead in time, um, hours or days doesn't interfere. It's no harder to describe where you're going to be the next day than it is to describe where you are right now. When did uh, precognitive remote viewing, that's what, was that what we would call that? Yeah, we would call that precognitive remote viewing. When did that begin? That began uh, when we were ready to publish our paper in the IEEE with Hella. We had, we had an agreement with, that's a funny story if I got time, briefly. Go ahead, we have time, it's up to you. One of the judges was the uh, vice president of Hewlett Packard, Bernie, Barney Oliver, just wrote across our paper that we submitted to the IEEE. Uh, this paper is the kind of thing I wouldn't believe even if it was true. <laughs> so, we were, so we were sitting in the office of uh, Bob Lucky, who was a laser researcher at Bell Labs and was the editor of the IEEE. And Lucky said, well, you know, it's, <clears throat> we have a lot of criticism of this paper just because people don't believe it. Nobody had any, any direct criticism of what you did. They just have a hard time swallowing this. And I said, well, why don't I go to your lab and teach some of the, your people how to do remote viewing? And you could go hide every day for a week. And one of your engineers could just describe where you are. And if that's significant, if they can do that, would you believe it? If you can, if you can, if you can teach my Bell Labs engineers how to do remote viewing, I'll publish your paper. Wow. So I went to Bell Lab, sat down with his crew of laser scientists, many of whom I knew from my life in lasers. And I said, well, this is what we're doing. And I explained to them uh, how you do remote viewing. We didn't do one. I just told them what to do, just told them the moves. So every day, Lucky would go and hide. And one of the engineers, um, either by himself, I don't really know how they did it. One of the engineers by himself or in a group would describe their mental pictures of where he was. And when he came back, what he found waiting for him at the end of the week was five packets just called A, B, C, D, and E. And he had to decide which packet corresponded to where he was on a given day. You understand? Mm -hmm. So he, he looked at these drawings by inexperienced viewers and he had to decide which drawing was supposed to pertain to the hot dog stand, which would pertain to the beach, which pertained to the pine trees. And he got all of them right, he got 100% correct and he published uh -huh. a paper. Wow. 
well then so then they that that's the best way of 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 teaching them is showing them that they can do it that's right the reason i would never do it see people came to our lab like the underset like walter laberge wanted to see something psychic and i said well i'll show you how to do it he said i don't even believe in this stuff and i said well you see if i brought in hella and she was able to describe where my friends were hiding you'd think that i was cheating or you'd think that um she's psychic but if you do it yourself you have your own experience to deal with when, when we're done with this you will have the drawing that you made together with the photograph we take at the place and then you'll go back to washington and you will know for a fact that remote viewing is real because you did it mm -hmm. that's, that's a story that i told dozens or perhaps hundreds of times to people basically i know you don't believe it let me show you how to do it and then we'll have your drawing to compare against where you're hiding and that and that was successful in fact we were at a conference once together i think it was the international remote viewing association conference and someone had these remote viewing kits that you could purchase with photos so you could do remote viewing yourself at home and i bought one of the kits and we had some friends over and one of them was the most skeptical he was like there's nothing you can do or tell me that's going to make me believe in any of this and of course his was the best drawing of the target of anyone in the group so i find that it's a very ex that's a, i mean how can you show them any better than that Right. He's oh, still yeah. skeptical, even after he did it, but he's still skeptical. <laughs> All I have to do is give people permission. Now, you see, so we are convinced that you can look very far away, because they can go look 500 million miles away. But earlier on, in the 1800s, 1885, uh, Madame Blavatsky created the Theosophical Society, Hel Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, and created Theosophical Society and for the purpose of understanding the mysteries of the universe and exploring the uh, hidden capabilities of mankind. So that, no, no, it's, it's almost like a Buddhist thing. There's no, no deity is, there's no deity in theosophy. She wants mm -hmm. to understand science and she wants to understand human capabilities. And so that was 1885, 1895, the periodic table had been figured out or the arrangement of all the elements. And Blavatsky was really quite an intelligent, she gets a lot of bad press because mm -hmm. she was ahead of her time, but she's highly intelligent. She said, I understand there's this periodic table of the elements. I think we should make a psychic periodic table. Look at all the elements psychically and see what they look like let's start with hydrogen because that's the simplest one so she got annie besant who is a prodigious famous psychic at the time to get a bar of paraffin because paraffin is about 95 percent paraffin is made only of hydrogen and carbon but 95 percent of it's hydrogen so she got Annie Besson to look at a block of paraffin and she made a drawing of two intersecting triangles and each triangle had a ball at the vertex. 
and she said that these these balls at the vertex are fundamental atomic units and they're held together the lines on the side of the so the balls on the triangle are fundamental atomic units and the lines on the side of the triangle are the energy bands of energy that hold us together and that's what a proton would look like and our hydrogen molecule of course are two of those and and that and that was published as she published that in 1895 in an article called occult chemistry in the in the lucifer magazine lucifer is not the devil lucifer is for light mm -hmm. the, the lucifer magazine of the uh, theosophical society and i was involved in the theosophical society in graduate school so i was a child theosophist and they showed me these drawings and i thought that that's very interesting drawing didn't mean anything to me because you say what she's basically saying is that hydrogen can be represented by a triangle with these little balls at the vertex what does that mean this is 1956 and in 19 i want to get 1968 the quark was invented murray gelman at at uh, princeton had the idea for a quark which was the fundamental unit that made up a proton proton is made up of three quarks held together by gluons so the big, big advance is that gelman <clears throat> gelman drew a triangle with a ball at each vertex and a line connecting the balls. Whereas Annie Besant had the same drawing. She called those fundamental atomic units and energy bands. Gilman had the exact same drawing. And he said that these are gluon, they're quarks held together by gluons. But it's, if you see them together, it looks like somebody just saw a picture of one and drew and drew a copy of it so so annie annie besant in 19 in 1895 was 70 years ahead of the discovery of the quark and the point of the story is it shows that holding this bar in her hand she's able to see something whose dimensions are like 10 to the minus 10th centimeters she could dive down into the bar of, par of paraffin and figure out what to draw to represent a hydrogen molecule and do that totally correct. So for regard to accuracy, there's no difference between the ultra microscopic drawing of a proton and Ingo's drawing of the rings around Jupiter 500 million miles away distance doesn't mean anything no so the idea is that consciousness permeates everything uh i remember when you <laughs> you invited me to meet ingo swan at his home in the battery and bowery bowery i mean bowery and i think he was more than just um a remote viewer and an artist because he told me something about myself 
and that was going to happen into my future. And I had no idea that I was even up for this. But when we were leaving his house and we were saying goodbye to him, he turned to me and said, you know, the problem with you is you're a shaman. You just don't know how to act and behave like a shaman. <laughs> and I didn't know what he was talking about. And then the next thing I know in the years ahead in front of me became I became part of the shamanism conference. I became someone who invited and had shamans as guests as their homes. And then recently in 2011 or 12, I was initiated as a Mongolian shaman. It was like he saw my whole future coming for me, telling me these things were going to happen. And when he told me, I thought, that seems so silly. But he was quite very correct. So he was also a predictor of <laughs> a personal future. How to give you a key to the future. Yes, he, he's, he was really something. And I'm, I'm so thrilled to have met him those couple of times. He was an amazing man. And his artistry and his paintings of the, of the planets were the, just magnificent. You've had so many wonderful people touch your life, Russell. I, I think that, you know, having an issue with eyesight was nothing that never held you back in any way. And in fact, you have inner eyesight. So uh, I think, who knows, it could have been, had you had your full vision, maybe you would have gone a different route. Who knows? My bad vision might have pulled, pushed me into uh, psychic, psychic viewing. Yes, where, where we take things that challenge us and turn them into things that change our life and others. It's a wonderful thing. So before, I was going to wind. say goodbye, why don't you show them the, 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 the new edition of the... I was going, that was just what I was coming up with. First, I want to thank you so much for being with us. But before we close out the show, I also wanted to talk just a few minutes and partially, of course, because my husband actually created these apps for you. So I'm, as a wife, very proud that my husband, David Levitt, made these. And they are very amazing. And I was so happy to help him in when he was doing the work with this with you. The first one was the ESP app that was um, you were trying to show us earlier in the show. And I'm not sure if it came out clear. So I'm just going to hold it up. Well, I have that here. Do you have that one right there? So here we are, right? Oh, you got it. Yeah, here we are, the ESP trainer, where you push, you pick a, a one and you have to see whether you're gonna find the picture behind the colored square. This has been a very valuable trainer for myself on times when I feel like I'm more psychic or I, or I call it like my hot times. I can go to this and get so many pictures in a row and it feels very satisfying. It also teaches you how to see which is the one that's not working for you. Like when you notice that the information comes for me, it fleets by very quickly and that's the one I have to grab. If it's ones that I sit there thinking about, that's the one that's never going to be the one. And this helps you to, 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 to teach you how to use that. Your newest one, which was just released this year. But what you just showed was successful in that we had 150 people at SRI and a significant number of them greatly increased their psychic ability on that machine. So NASA was ha happy with us. And that led to the new machine, instead of guessing colors, we're, we, we know that uh, guessing colors leads to a guessing game. And we want you to be able to visualize the surprise that you're gonna see. 
So let me just show them the icon, which is kind of small here, but it's it's the eye, it's the eye, which is the uh, on the on the front cover of your um, uh, video on your on your documentary. It's entitled Stargate ESP, and you can download it from the App Store. So I'm going to open it up, and what's going to happen is you're going to be asked a question. So Russell, do you think that it has buildings or no buildings? Let's say buildings. Okay, so we're going to say buildings. We're only going to ask two questions here. Uh, do you think it's natural or man-made? Man-made. Okay, so we're going to say man-made. And then four photos are going to come up and you're going to have the opportunity to select which photo you think matches the photo that you saw. Well, the only man-made thing that the building is a pyramid, so we'd have to go with that. Okay, so we'll hit the pyramid. And yep, lo and behold, he does it again. <laughs> it's the pyramid. That's wonderful. So I'm just going to show uh, our, our YouTube viewers that you would then click the bottom and you would start again with the next, the next questions. And you'd have two more questions for the next photo. And you would do this 12 times. That's right. This is a, a both of these, that this game is called Stargate ESP Trainer and is also available at no charge from the Apple Store. And so, I suggest people download it today because they'll have a lot of fun with it. And actually, besides remote viewers who have praised this, this app and are very happy to use it for students and their own selves. There's actually young children who find it fascinating. So there's children that find the ESP one entertaining for them and also nothing like children to show you how easy it is to be psychic. That's what I got the idea from this in reading Jung's book on synchronicity where he was criticizing Ryan for using the five cars, circle, square, stars. He said that doesn't correspond to the way the human mind functions. Human mind functions spaciously. You need something, you want to use natural targets that a person doesn't know. If you use circle square stars, the person becomes wants to guess at them and guessing is not psychic. You have to use natural things. So this, out, this new game is an outgrowth of what Jung told me to do. And it is a collection of over 207 different photos. And I also think it's important to mention that they do invoke an emotional experience also where the ocean or beach makes you have a calm and happy memory or beautiful trees or the Great Pyramid. These are all uh, photos that really attract the remote viewer. And you see, you're 100 miles from me. It didn't interfere with my ability to choose right on your game. Exactly. You're far away. Exactly. Now, I want you to know that this is not new age stuff. So I have a book here called Self-Liberation Through Seeing with Naked Awareness. And this is not a new age book. This was written by Padma Sambhava, who's the person who brought Buddhism to Tibet. Padma Sambhava was a famous Indian guru in the eighth century, and there was strife in Tibet over religion. And Padmasambhava was thought to be a great magician and 
a great uh, teacher. So he was brought to Tibet and he created Tibetan Buddhism and he then wrote this book. So the idea of Buddhism is that so everyone agrees that the world is full of suffering and, and we don't like it. So the, one of the goals of Buddhism is to learn to control your mind to deal with that suffering. So self-liberation through seeing with naked awareness sounds like something about remote viewing. Can you hold that up so the listeners on YouTube can see that? Okay, great. The idea, the idea is that remote viewing is not new age. This was written in the eighth century. It's an introduction to the name. Padmasambhava said, this is an introduction to the nature of one's own mind. And, and he says that as you quiet your mind in an effort, to, your nature is timeless awareness, that who you are is timeless awareness. You're not really meat and potatoes or what you see in the mirror. If you, if you, think, you're, if you think that who you are is what you see in the mirror in the morning, you're in for a lot of suffering. <laughs> but he says, your nature is timeless awareness. In order to experience timeless awareness, you have to give up your desire to name things and to grasp. You quiet your mind and you can move into timeless awareness. So he's really describing the nature of remote viewing where you want to stay away from guessing, which is why the Stargate game is better than the four color game. Four color game is your guessing colors. In the Stargate game, you've got 200 pictures and you never know what you're going to get. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's an anti-guessing game. But Papa Zimbabwe understood that in the seventh, in the eighth century, that you want to stay away from guessing and naming and grasping in order to move seamlessly into timeless awareness. So through science, remote viewing, etc. And there he is. He's on, he's on my, he's on the wall right behind my head. Baba. He it has brought you also through a spiritual path. Is that correct? That's correct. And not everybody necessarily follows that spiritual path, but I have noticed lately in some of the conferences, I think it was the AAP or the Associated, and it was one of the recent uh, remote viewing type conferences. Uh, I saw a lot of different talks about spirituality, and I was really impressed that this whole other avenue seems to be being brought into the scientific community because I feel spirituality is the most important foundation of all of this. Well, people get the idea. I mean, once you start, once you quiet your mind, you get the idea that there's more going on than uh, what's on the screen in front of you. Mm -hmm. Well, I would like to, uh, in our closing, I'd like to just read what you 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 shared at the bottom of the paper that you sent me about meta prayer of loving kindness because i think it would be a beautiful thing for our listeners to finish off with here after our talk about science and remote viewing would that be okay with you i don't i don't remember what i wrote but yeah, yeah. well it's a it's the buddha meta prayer of loving kindness oh yes may you be in peace May your heart remain open to give and receive love. May you awaken to the light of your true nature. May you be healed 
from all fear and separation. May you be a source of healing for all beings. May you be happy. And I want to thank you for being our guest today. I think we have more to talk about. Maybe you can come on our show again another time. We're wishing you a wonderful week ahead and sending you oceans and oceans of love. Thank you very much. I'm always happy to chat with you, Gail. It's nice to see you, even though you're 100 miles away. I feel it's a good connection. Yes, it's always been a good connection. I love you, Russell. Love you. Bye-bye. If you like this episode and want to hear more on a small, medium, at large podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can find these on our description. You can also visit my website to read more stories about Gail and her travels. Again, links are in the description. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'll be back soon with another episode of a small, medium, at large podcast with Gail Heisen. Who knows who we'll have next, but we know it's going to be fun. Have a wonderful day and oceans of love to all of you. Bye-bye.